You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning and welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And this week is a listener Q&A session. It's been a few months since we've gone into the inbox to discuss all things property. And we thought we would rustle up a pile of our Back to Basics questions that have come through. We've had a number of listeners join us recently, I believe, from the more novice side of the market, looking for an opportunity to learn. Now, the first thing I would say to everyone today is we're at episode 230. If you've only just gotten on in the last 10, 20 episodes learning about the market, listening to some of the most respected and experienced property people in the industry, you're going to recognize that these episodes have been really quite detailed with a high level of sophistication from the guests coming on. But what I do recognize is it's been quite a while since we've chatted about the basics of property, about market fundamentals, about should I get in the market? How can I get in the market? What if I have a less than 20% for a loan, where are interest rates going, how's the build market looking. These are the questions that I get around a barbecue every weekend with friends and family and they're questions that are reflected in the inbox of the Perth Property Show over the last few months. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to get everyone to not only listen to this episode for a lot of those basics but also start looking back through some of those episodes in the first 100, 150 weeks of the show that spoke about capital gains tax, subdivision, landscaping, home technology, over a hundred suburb spotlights from pretty much every suburb you would want to live in in Western Australia. Small scale development, finance, tax, law, all of those property related topics that are really the nuts and bolts of understanding how to become a risk mitigated profit achieving property investor are all there, especially in those first 100 episodes. Please go have a listen to those if you've just come on board and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show today where we dive into some of those really fundamental questions about participating in the property market and more specifically in Western Australia. So we'll kick it off with the first question that comes from Veronica. Veronica asks, is it safe to build again in Western Australia? That's a really great question and it opens up a can of worms, to be honest, Veronica. When we think about building in WA, we've obviously recognized the headlines over the last couple of years. We're over 1,200 building companies nationally collapsed last year and over 1,200 have collapsed in the last four months in Australia. So it really is a critical risk point right now to be a builder, therefore also to be the client of a builder. How are things looking in the market for builders? Well, the reality is Perth's largest builder, BGC, just closed its doors to all new work two weeks ago and laid off over 100 staff in doing so in the admin sales teams within. So uh, things are looking fairly dire right from the top all the way down to the small builder for a lot of those builders who have been caught in that phase over the last few years having signed build contracts with the build boom back in 2020 and then have been struggling to honor those contracts that have seen price rises on their side increase by about 50%. So no builder can withstand those price rises given most margins were sitting between 10 and 20% back in 2020. So back to the fundamental question, is it safe now? Well, I would suggest it's still a minefield and the perception out there is that it is a minefield and maybe not one that is worth crossing for a lot of people who are able to sniff out a solid existing home or renovation project. But for those people who are looking to build, and that's currently about a thousand people a month across the state that are signing up to do so, a couple of key questions to mitigate whether it is safe or not to build with a specific builder would be the following. Firstly, ask that builder 
how many projects they have on the go at the moment. If it's a small builder, one that you recognize is probably operating out of a small office. You wouldn't want to see them currently building more than 10 or 20 properties at a time. That means they're really stretching their indemnity insurance and their cash flow. If they're a medium to large builder, one that you might see advertising on TV and radio, you're going to expect that they're going to have a few hundred properties underway. And then I would start to ask the questions, for example, can I see some of the builds that you're undertaking? Start to inspect yourself how tidy the site is. Ask the question, how long have these builds been sitting there? At what stage are they at now? And unfortunately, the reality with the building industry right now is even the biggest builders, as I suggested, with the biggest bank balances, who should be able to ride this out are suffering to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a year at the moment in losses. So it's probably the mid-sized builder that can demonstrate their ability to get on the ground quickly now uh, that is more likely to stick around for the long term. They're the ones that didn't take too much work on in the building boom, that still have a vibrant team and still have sign-ups coming on as well. Those are the builders that I would be looking to work with. Now, recognize that there isn't a builder out there who hasn't increased their margins over the last three years. With builders being burnt since 2020, and a lot of these contracts and looking to probably recover some lost profit since then, their margins have probably increased by 5 to 10%. That's really hard to swallow. And what I would suggest is you seriously consider the established market and whether you could renovate that house or move straight into that property, even if it does seem to be at a premium because that new build will be far more expensive than you expect. If you are definitely looking to build, I would implore you to find your own drafty or your own architect and get your own design approved through council without a builder. What that will do is give you the confidence and the ability to be able to work between a number of builders without that design being locked in to the builder in the first place. So spend a bit of money up front so you can own your own design and shop that job around a couple of builders and get the feel yourself without being obliged to stick with that first sales consultant you meet. I hope that answers that question, but you're right to ask the question, is it safe to build again WA? Well, if it's not safe now, I expect it will be by the end of the year. Those companies that were going to survive or are going to survive will have survived by the time we get to the end of the year. The chokehold right now in the building industry is around plastering, roofing, dip rocking these sort of spaces. Uh, cabinet makers and window uh, fitters are also uh, really tough to find. If you're starting a new project though, a new build, your, your family home, you would have missed that whole traffic jam and the builders I'm talking to are already flying through the front end from slab down to bricks and they're expecting to be able to build single homes in seven, eight months again. So that is starting to certainly open up and I would suspect if you're looking to make that decision to build, it's probably the end of the year where it will start to get a bit safer. Let's move to the next question. Oscar asks, is the rental market going to get more expensive? I'm struggling as it is. Oscar, unfortunately, the reality is the rental market is in the most undersupplied situation it's been in for over 50 years. And we only say 50 years because that's as long as we've been recording it. And due to what we just said earlier on the build side, it is not going to get any better, any easier anytime soon. We aren't reducing in population. Therefore, we have more people coming in. Most of them rent first. And therefore, we need more houses supplied and, and we have that chokehold at the moment. So whilst we have seen rents push past our historical highs recently with the median rent sitting at about $550 a week, it's only going to get worse, unfortunately. And I can appreciate how tough it is for you right now. It's also tough for landlords who are paying interest rates double what they were a year ago too. 
So the cost of living has increased and people are going to have to reassess what's important to them when it comes to their budget every week. I can guarantee you though, your rent will increase at least another 10% over the next year. That is my assumption. Oscar, I hope things are well with you. Next question comes from Jessica. Jessica asks, can I buy a property without LMI? Yeah, you can, Jessica. There's a number of ways you can do that. The first and most obvious way is to contribute 20% or more of the purchase price via your cash. So your deposit, your security would be 20% of that property. If you were buying a $500,000 house, you would need to provide $100,000 plus whatever stamp duty you had to pay on top of that if you were a first-home buyer or not. What other ways are there to not pay LMI or lender's mortgage insurance? One way is to go through the government-backed first home buyers deposit scheme. That is a scheme that a number of the big banks do participate in, where if you meet certain criteria on on income and you're a first home buyer, you can put a 5% deposit down and they will back you in for the security of the other 15% in that on a $500,000 purchase, you could put a $25,000 deposit down and you don't have to pay LMI. You should speak to your broker about participating in that scheme. And I know the big banks like CBA and NAB do participate in that. The other way to do it is to go through Keystart. I'm not a big fan of Keystart. They charge exorbitant interest rates, but they do allow a minimum deposit of just 2%. So if you are really tight on that deposit, that is a possibility for you. But recognize that the interest rate right now with Keystart is 8%. So it does make it quite hard for people to be able to afford a mortgage. There are a number of banks that offer a waiver on your LMI if you have a certain profession. Now, we know that, for example, ANZ offer a Medico waiver. So if you're a nurse or a physio or a doctor or in that space, you can have a 10% deposit and not pay LMI. Westpac like to assist lawyers and accountants with the same deal. And you'll find that NAB and CBA offer their own schemes in that LMI waiver space too. Finally, you can get a guarantee from your parents. Now, if you don't have a 20% deposit, but maybe you have a 5% or 10% deposit, you can have your parents guarantee the rest via securing their family home or their investment property against the purchase you're making and the bank won't charge you LMI in that space too. So there are a number of ways to avoid LMI and I hope one of those is one that you can make the most of, Jessica. Next question comes from Diego. Diego asks, are interest rates having an impact on the WA property market? That's a broad question, Diego, and it is a really interesting one. What I would say to that is that, yes, of course, they will be having an impact, but not to the extent that it is creating negative growth in WA. Whilst increasing interest rates decreases the buying capacity of people, what we've found fundamentally is that the demand and supply relationship in Western Australia is far more impactful on prices than the ability to pay. So when demand growth is consistently stronger than supply growth, and supply growth is negative in this case in Western Australia at the moment, we're supplying less and less property every year, then that is the fundamental that means that no seller needs to sell more than a buyer needs to buy. Therefore, prices don't nominally drop across Western Australia. Does it mean that prices grow? Well, that comes down to affordability. So if in certain areas, the median salary, average Joe can afford to pay more, well, then prices will grow. 
if we're in suburbs that are more aspirational, second quartile of prices in WA where people would like to pay more, there's demand for it, but they just can't stretch any further because of serviceability, then that's where we're seeing no downside pressure, but also no ability for upside growth as well. And that's where right now there's quite a divergence in performance in Western Australia. A lot of the lower price suburbs and extremely higher price suburbs where either affordability isn't an issue on the bottom side and affordability isn't an issue on the top side, those suburbs are growing. And the suburbs probably between $1 million and $2 million are seeing a little bit of stagnation right now. They're certainly not dropping, but they're also being held back by those affordability issues in being able to push that little bit more mortgage. So Diego, that's where it's working in WA at the moment. And I think we can segue into the next question, which comes from Anthony. Anthony asks, where are interest rates going, Trent? What do you think? And that will have an impact obviously on where prices go in WA over the next 12 months. So interest rates, where are they going? It's really hard to have a crystal ball on this. Anyone who said they knew what they were talking about two years ago in terms of where interest rates were going, including the RBA governor, uh, including myself, were wrong, to be frank. Interest rates have risen far further than most people expected them to. But the current consensus, if I can give you that, and, and again, it's been wrong in the past, but the current consensus is that we maybe have one more interest rate rise expected in the next month or two and that interest rates will either plateau and or drop in the next 12 months. So most people right now are under the consensus that if you can afford what you're paying now, you should be fine. It will either stay as it is or get expensive for your monthly bill in the next 12 months. And therefore, it would start to provide a bit of confidence in the market already seeing that come back surprisingly in Sydney with price growth coming back there where they're pricing in a level of affordability again over the next 12 months. So as interest rates plateau or even come back, you'll start to see affordability continually increase with wage growth increasing and therefore price growth is released to be able to start reflecting the chronic undersupply situation we have in WA right now. Thanks for that question. Next question I've got is from Olivia. Olivia asks, the real estate agent told me I need a settlement agent. Do I? What do settlement agents do and how soon should I engage one? That's exactly right, Olivia. A lot of people, especially first home buyers, are of the understanding that when you buy a property, the real estate agent does everything for you. Well, they do to the point of the transaction. Once your offer has been accepted, then what happens is that the work of transferring that property from the seller to you is actually passed on to a person called a settlement agent or a conveyancer. That person works with Landgate, who manage all the titles in Western Australia and they work with the settlement agent for the seller to be able to do all the legal paperwork to get that title from the seller's name into your name. How soon should you engage one? Well, you could engage one before you even make that purchase, make that relationship with a settlement agent. We find at Strategic Settlements, we have clients engaging us even before they've made an offer just to get an understanding of what's going on. Or most clients will engage us uh, in our settlement agency, for example, within a day or two after having that contract agreed. Once that contract is agreed, the buyer is obliged to register that contract with the Office of State Revenue for stamp duty purposes within three days. So uh, if you have purchased a property and your real estate agent says you need a settlement agent, I highly advise you to get on your bike. Have a look around for an agent that seems to work for you either in a price or a location or a quality basis and engage that settlement agent as soon as you can. Your settlement agent will then manage that transaction for you 
in conjunction with your bank or mortgage broker and the real estate agent all the way through until that transaction is settled. And then after that, they will tidy up all of the accounts for you to make sure that you've paid exactly what you should, not a cent more, not a cent less. So certainly invest in a good settlement agent to make that purchasing process or the selling process as seamless as possible. Thanks a lot for that, Olivia. Next question comes from Callum. Callum asks, Trent, why would I invest in property in the first place when I can invest in the share market right now? Well, look, Callum, I'm not here to comment on the share market or crypto or cars or art, any of those things. What I know is property and if I can work through a couple of the benefits of property, hopefully that will persuade you to jump in. Look, investing in property is, for me, the only way that I invest my money. I've been doing it since I was 19 years old. And the reason I prefer it over shares, which I dabbled in in my teenage years, is a couple of things. One, it's a physical asset. You can see, touch, and keep an eye on. And that's why I call it real estate. It's a real asset. What I enjoy about that is in comparison to stocks is that the price doesn't change every 20 minutes. With stocks, I was going mental, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing values all the time. What I like about the real estate market is if you understand the fundamentals of the asset, you can take your time to learn the asset and understand where the value of that asset is going over time. You can see based on amenity, physical amenity of great views, water, cities, schools, transport, things that we can relate to every day, why an asset would increase in value over another. Whereas in the stock market, it's quite tough for a lay person to understand that environmental approval or that balance sheet or trust in the board of directors you've never heard of in the company. You don't really understand what they're doing. So that's why I prefer property. I also love leverage. It's pretty hard to leverage in the stock market. When you invest $100,000 and make 10%, you make 10 grand that year unless you've gone into a margin lending situation, which is fairly rare for most people. In property, it's normal to leverage. If you put $100,000 in, you've probably got a $500,000 asset. When that makes 10%, you make $50,000. So with leverage, it makes good decisions fantastic. It makes bad decisions not so good. But the good thing about property is even when your property is reduced in value, as long as you don't sell, you don't lose. But in the same way, you don't win either. So time is really a beneficiary. You can service property through renting it out. It can pay for itself through renting it out. But also it can be an investment that you live in. We all need to live somewhere. And if you can align your investment strategy with your lifestyle preferences, can also therefore be a tax-free investment too. So I really enjoy property for those reasons, not to mention many more that uh, I'm sure people will have learned over the last 230 episodes. Callum, thanks a lot for that question. Next question I have comes from Dave. Dave asks, what's the best sign to know when I should purchase a property? Dave, I'll assume that you haven't purchased one yet and therefore we'll run through some of the basics. On a macro level in the state, it's a good time to buy a property fundamentally when population growth is higher than the long-term average. That means that more than likely, demand is growing faster than suppliers because we never supply unless there is demand and supply lags demand. So if there's more demand than usual, it's more than likely that we don't have the supply for it and therefore we're in a market where prices can grow. The next point of when you buy a property, well, you should buy a property when you've got the money to do so and the servicing to do so. You would really like to get into a position where you're comfortable that when you put your your deposit into that purchase, you're not left with a couple of thousand dollars in the bank. You've got enough money to tide you over for whatever other costs you may have with that property, such as rates and maintenance, but also in the rest of your life. But also recognize that you don't really want to be spending 
more than 35 or 40% of your disposable income on your mortgage. So make sure that you're checking what your disposable income is being your income after tax. And therefore, if that is no more than 40% of what the mortgage would be, I would suggest that would be a good time for you personally as well. Back to where the market is, people generally say buy when people are selling and sell when people are buying. And, that, and that's a fairly crude way to look at it. I would suggest that lots of people are buying right now. There are record numbers of people buying and you should still be buying now because we are halfway up that curve in my opinion. There's still years to go on this property curve in Western Australia. Really, the best time to buy is yesterday. In property, what we've noticed over the years is that we just do not in Western Australia have the supply capacity for our long-term growth. As long as population continues to grow in a market, which it will continue to do in Western Australia, we know that we'll have another million people over the next 25 years, then property prices will invariably grow because we'll rarely be in times where we'll have more supply than we have demand. So the quicker you can jump on the market, Dave, the quicker you will be able to benefit from the leverage I've spoken about of owning assets that are worth more than the cash you have through leverage. And then let's look at the strategy side. The next question we've got and the final question for the day comes from Isabella. Isabella asks, Trent, what is your favorite strategy for investing in property? If you were me, how would you go about maximizing your investment strategy from day one? Isabella, fantastic question. If you feel like you are ready to go, you've met those parameters I've just spoken about from Dave's question. The next question is, what's the strategy? I would suggest that the strategy should always be one that is land-based. Land appreciates in value. The house portion, the dwelling portion is what depreciates over time. Now that can distort when the cost of building goes up as we're seeing right now, but invariably over the time, it's land that appreciates. So what we wanna do is control as much land as close to the city or as close to water as possible. And we would like to be in a position where that land has subdivision capacity, being that you can one day split that block into maybe two or three blocks. Why do we want that? Well, because what we're doing there is solving a problem for society in that we own an asset that will be able to increase supply in an infill location in the future. And we generally are rewarded by society for undertaking that project. You may never undertake that project, but you want to control as much land that has subdivision capacity as close to the city or as close to water as you can from there. Even if that property is $400,000 and you're buying a subdivision block in Medina or Gosnells or Lockridge or Balga, if you're starting at that price, it is always better in my opinion than buying an apartment or a villa, fulfilling the profit of someone else's development. So that is where I would start. And if you can start there, and you can move on to acquire as high a value properties as you can with those fundamentals of having as much land as possible, as close to the city or water as you can find it, then certainly that strategy will hold you in good stead for the long term. Make sure that that property generally has an ability to service itself through rental income and recognize that more properties doesn't mean you are a better property investor. I would rather have two subdivision potential properties in Netherlands than 10 subdivision potential properties in Gosnells. That's a reality. The quicker you can upscale your asset control to the more in-demand suburbs, recognize that in a capitalist world, the wealth gap will continue to widen. Unfortunately, the rich will continue to get richer. The quicker you can control property in areas like that, the more risk mitigated you will be over time. 
Guys, I really appreciate all the questions that have come in. Please keep sending them through and every couple of months, I'll answer those questions. Thank you so much to everyone listening. This has been a Back to Basics episode for those novice investors who are just getting into the market and have probably been a little alienated by the last 20 or 30 higher complexity episodes. We'll always have episodes for you. We'll try and get some more suburb spotlights in as well. And we'll be talking about the land market next week with my favorite land salesman, Damon Strang. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!